Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Can you guys go ahead and grab a quick seat? You know what, as we were singing, I feel like there's just a really cool picture as I was watching what was going on around us and kind of what we were up to, what we were doing, and thank you, brother. Um, I feel like, how do I get to where I can see everybody? I don't even know how to do this thing. Like do a dance over here somewhere. Um, and isn't it cool? You know, one of the things about being in, a, being in a place like this that's really cool for me as I watch what's going on and watch, was watching us singing is, as we're singing, we're broadcasting it to our city. Like there's nothing to stop the, the voices that you guys are singing and the truths we're proclaiming from just going out into our city. And that really is what the church is supposed to be, Right? In the middle of a dark time, don't you love the picture of a group of people that is shining a bright light in the city saying, look, God is good even in the middle of a dark time. Even when times seem bad, God is still good. And and I love being here because I can look out and just think as you guys are singing of that message being broadcast all throughout our city. And that's really what we want to be about. And so I also want to just take a minute. First, happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, It's a chance for us to get to celebrate um, and, and man, it's good for us to be together. It's a moment, and in a moment, I want us to pray together. We've got so many freedoms and so many good things that we enjoy in our world that it is good to celebrate those. But I was emailing with a friend in England this week and he emailed back and he just said, he was telling me happy Independence Day, which is always strange for a guy from England to tell me. But, uh, but he said, I'm guessing the celebration is gonna be a little muted this year. And, and he, just, he was just testifying that, man, we're looking at our world, we're looking at where we are in our world right now, and we just see the division, we see the brokenness, we see the hurt, we see the anger and the vitriol and everything that's going around. And I mean, there's just been a heaviness for us. And as grateful as I am for all the freedoms we have, I also know, and we just, we've got work to do and we need the Lord to heal us. And so one of the things I wanna do is I just wanna pray for our country and pray for our world and uh, pray that God would bring healing and reconciliation um, where it's so desperately needed. And so in that, uh, that's really, we just have committed that the first Sunday of the month, we're gonna take a moment and just pray that God would heal us. Pray that God would bring racial reconciliation um, to our world. And uh, I feel like as crazy as our world is and as much as we have lost our minds, I have to say there is no statement there other than God is the ruler of the universe and he has made us all. And so we wanna seek him and ask him to bring about healing and goodness in his people uh, and the people of the world. And so uh, let me just um, read Romans 15. It says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. That's the heartbeat of, of really what we want to be about. So and would, you just, would you just bow your heads and pray with me? And I just want to read a prayer of reconciliation and healing over us. Father, we confess that we, your people, are not living in harmony. We confess that we do not welcome one another as we have been welcomed by Christ. Lord, how long will your world and your church be divided along racial lines? How long will the lingering effects of animosity, injustice, and pride 
mark your blessed bride. How long, O Lord, will we be entrenched and isolated? How long will we pour out anger that does not accomplish your righteousness? God, would you help us to love one another? Give us empathy and understanding. Create trust where there is pain. Make your church the beautiful bride of Christ you want her to be. Father, without you, nothing will change. In our hurt, in our weariness, we are hopeful that you can change hearts and unite our church and our world. We believe the gospel is greater than our divisions, and we long for the day when the world will take note of how well your people love each other. So help us to meet each other in this journey. Heal us together so that we might walk together. Prepare us for the day when we will worship together in your glory. In the name of Jesus, our King, amen. We are going to be in Romans chapter 12. If you've got your Bibles, you might look there or your device and look it up. We're going to look at the first two verses of Romans 12. And as we do, I just want to start and say, recent months have really exposed the church in some of our deficiencies. You know, when, when the church has made everything about the big event, everything about the exciting, emotionally stirring moments, everything about the, the celebrities on stage and the thing that's going on and all the trappings, uh, this moment's kind of exposed that because we can't do it. <laughs> and so God, in some ways, the times have taken that out of our hands and really, it's changed. It's kind of shown us how much we need to change the scorecard for success from big events and catchy slogans and emotional reactions to true discipleship of every single individual. Truly helping people have direct devotion and foster dependence not on an event or a preacher or a moment, but, on, uh, but, but a dependence on the Lord. And so that's our heartbeat as we think about this, that the church's focus would really be on God and on what he would have us be and to do. All right, let's get into Romans, Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Romans, one of the most critical books of the Bible and one of the most revealing ones about our faith, um, this, these verses really serve as a pivot in that, in that entire book. And so the first 11 chapters of Romans unpack the glories that we have in our salvation that, through Christ and everything that, that, that's kind of been unfolded to us through Jesus. And then these verses serve as a pivot to kind of set up chapters, uh, really the rest of the book, so chapter 12 and on. And so these verses, as you think about them, say, kind of give you a, a kind of a, a header or a summary of everything that's to follow but also kind of transition us into that. And they want to show us really, and what the, what the rest of the book shows, is how we're to live in light of the mercy of God, how we're to live in light of the salvation that we've received from God. And so he says, let me, uh, I appeal to you. I appeal to you, brothers. And he's going to begin to form his argument. He's going to make a logical argument that he wants us to follow. And as he does that, he says, I urge you, I come alongside you to encourage or to exhort. He doesn't come as a commander just giving dictates to us. He doesn't come as a celebrity on stage just trying to impress us. He comes more as a brother alongside us saying, hey, I want to encourage you to do what is right and what is good. And then he builds the grounds of his argument. He starts off and, and, and kind of gives us the foundation of everything he's going to say from here. And he says, by the mercies of God. So everything he says after this is going to be built on the grace and the mercy of God that we have received. And he's addressing it, you notice, to Christians. When he says brothers, he's, he's saying that, that he's writing this to Christians. 
Now, some of you may be here and you're new to church or new to Christianity and you, you haven't really entertained these things and you're not really sure what he's talking about when he says, by the mercies of God. Well, Christianity is founded on the idea that none of us are good enough to save ourselves, but God in his grace gave us a gift of salvation that we simply receive by faith. We accept that. We surrender to it and just give our lives to him because of the grace and the mercy of God. We're saved by sheer grace. So when it says that through God's mercy, or by God's mercy, it could say through God's mercy, it could say in, uh, in light of God's mercy, or in view of God's mercy, or because of God's mercy. And what he's saying in all that is that God's mercy is the motivator for the Christian life. That, that God's mercy and his grace is the thing that drives us and compels us to live in response to God, and in response for everything that we've received. Now, if you had read through the rest of Romans, and uh, if I were to preach through that, it would take us quite a while to get through that if you know how I like to preach. But as you think about Romans and you think about everything that he said to this point, let me just give you a little of kind of the mercies of God that he's laid out for us in the past. When he says, uh, when he talks about the mercies of God, Romans 1.7 says that we are loved by God. We receive the power of God for salvation, 1.16. We have peace with God, chapter 5.1. We have access to God, 5.2. We are saved from God, wrath of God, 5.9. We have reconciliation with God, 5.10. We have newness of life, that's 6.4. We have freedom from condemnation and shame, that's chapter 8.1. We have adoption as sons, 8.15. We're heirs with Christ, 8.17, we're predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's 8.29.30. We're more than conquerors, he says, chapter 8.37. All of that, when he says mercies of God, he intends for you to hear all of that, all of that grace and all of that goodness flowing down on you as though you'd read all of Romans. And he's just saying, look, there's no wrath for you. There's no condemnation for you. There's no judgment for you. There's adoption for you. There's brotherhood for you. There's an heir. You're, you're an heir of the God of the universe and you inherit everything that he, that he has along with Jesus. You're more than a conqueror. So in light of that, because of that mercy, we're to be motivated and energized to live out in response to God and live out the spiritual life. Now, here's the thing that I realize about our day is we, we live in a, in a world right now that seems to have lost complete touch with mercy. We live in a world that, that seems like grace is completely absent right now. Uh, any, any of you want to admit that you were fans of Seinfeld back in the day? And there's a, there's a famous kind of a, a scene in Seinfeld where Mr. Casanza creates a, an alternate holiday for Christmas. Christmas was a little too cheerful, happy, and welcoming for him, so he created another holiday called Festivus, and it was meant to be kind of a counter-holiday. And in that, the, the thing that begins Festivus is what he calls the, air, the airing of grievances. And the airing, airing of grievances is where you just stand up around the table and you scream at all the people around you and tell them everything they've done wrong all year that you've been holding up that you want to get back at them. And so it's sort of just like raising your fist and raising your voice and just saying, I'm taking the filter off. I'm giving you everything I've been, I've been mad about all year long. And I'm just going to air my grievances. And, and it's meant to be kind of a contrast to Christmas and the happiness of that holiday, just this kind of emotional, verbal vomit of anger and, and frustration of everything you've, you've held tightly all year long. And here's what I see in our world is that we're, we're really good at airing our grievances. We're, we're not very good at mercy. And this is actually the way of the world. The way of the world says, you get what you deserve and I'll stand here and I'll clap and watch you suffer for it. And so when you do wrong, man, I'm here to put it on a list and I'm here to come back and throw it in your face and make sure that you feel all the weight of all the stuff you did wrong. 
That is the way of the world. The way of the world judges you based on performance. And if you've ever failed, we're not going to let you forget it. We're not going to let you out of the corner. But that's not the way of mercy. There's a reason the Bible doesn't tell us to live in view of our grievances. That the Bible says live in view of your mercy, the mercies of God. That's why Jesus said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, those, those of you who have been some been Christians for some time. Can you remember the, the time when this thing was kind of new and you were crazy enough to think that the Bible meant what it said? It's like, can you remember the, a time when you would read the words of Jesus and go, wow, he said, love your enemies. That probably means something radical, like love your enemies. And you didn't come around and like, let me back, back pedal and all that stuff. But you just said, wow, I should lean into that and learn how to do that. <clears throat> See, what Jesus was saying was we need to be less reactive to our circumstances in our world more responsive to who God is and what God's desire and his will for us is. God's mercy, friends, is the power that exerts an all-encompassing claim on us. In Romans 5.21, it says, as sin reigned in death, grace reigns in righteousness. See, grace isn't just a do-over for the things you've done wrong. Grace is the, the presence of God in your life teaching you how to live in an entirely new way. Grace transforms us. And God loves to give his grace. He's not holding it out to us like, uh, like a guy at the carnival. Any of you like to go to the fair? Got canceled this year, so I'm just gonna rub it in your face here for a minute. So you go to the fair and you go to the, uh, the midway and you go to play a game and there's always that guy there that's gonna make sure you don't win the big prize. Like his entire job is to make sure you, he doesn't have to give you the really good stuff. You need to know God's not like that. God's not holding back on you, trying to keep you from getting the good stuff. God loves to give his grace and his mercy. And so we live in light of the mercies of God. Let me share a picture with you from a book by Dane Ortland that I think captures this well. He says, a compassionate doctor um, goes deep into the jungle to provide medical care for a, a primitive tribe afflicted with contagious disease. He's got, he has medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem. He's got all the, the antibiotics that are prepared and available. And he's independently wealthy, so he has, he has no need of any kind of payment or compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, the afflicted refuse. They, they want to take care of themselves. They want to heal themselves on their own terms. Finally, a few brave men step forward to receive care that's being freely provided. What do you think the doctor feels when those few show up to be treated? Well, he feels joy. The entire reason he went across, uh, across the world to be in that moment and took everything there and did all this work was so that he could bring healing to them. So he, he doesn't have any reservation. He's there and it brings nothing but joy for him to give away. His joy actually increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing. It's the entire reason why he came. Friends, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to us through the incarnation to heal us. He didn't come begrudgingly holding out, but for the joy set before him. He came and he wants to give us mercy. And so we need to draw on the mercy of God for strength to live. That's why it's so important for us to respond to God's mercy. And so he says, by the mercies of God, that we are to live and we're to respond to him. But it's clear from this passage and others that God's mercy doesn't automatically produce obedience in us, right? I mean, like, you, you didn't get baptized, come, out of the, come up out of the waters glowing in holiness with angels singing over you for all of your goodness and perfection, did you? And parents, can I get an amen? Like, your kids got saved, but they didn't get, but everything didn't get fixed. Like, they still don't eat the green beans. Like, they still don't do stuff that you want them to do because they've still got some work to do. And so, even though we receive God's mercy, it doesn't automatically produce something in us, which is why he says that we need to present our bodies as living sacrifices. 
that we need to come to God and we need to present ourselves to him and say, I'm here to obey you. And so living by the mercies of God, because we've received the mercies of God, in light of the mercies of God, we come to the Lord and say, here I am, Let me learn, teach me how to live for you. Now in the Old, Old Testament sacrificial system, as we think about sacrifices and what does it mean for us to be living sacrifices, uh, in, in the Old Testament sacrificial, sacrificial system, you didn't have living sacrifices, you had dead sacrifices. So you came and you brought an animal and you put it to death in order to pay the penalty for sin in order, and in order to honor the Lord and worship him as an act of surrender to him. But here's the call to present not a sacrifice to be killed, but a sacrifice to live for God. See, Christ made the final sacrifice. Christ meant that there were, were no more sacrifices that were needed. There's no more death that was needed. Instead, we receive life by God's mercy and we respond in obedience to him. And so we're living sacrifices. When it says we present our bodies to him, he's saying, bring your whole life. Bring everything that you are and just present it to the Lord and say, Lord, here I am, I wanna live for you. <clears throat> now we see what sacrifice looks like all over in our world, don't we? Um, we've got medical professionals, those in our body that I know, and, and I see the sacrifice they made make where they're putting themselves in harm's way. They're going into the hospitals and they're receiving and they're caring and they're treating the patients there in a contagious environment where they're putting themselves at risk. They're taking a sacrifice to serve someone else. In August, I'm gonna go and do a funeral for a friend of mine and his young wife had early dementia. In the middle of her early dementia, she just began to, everything began to fade away and she began, her body began not to work and she began not to even be able to recognize him. And he and, he and their two daughters and so he had to drop everything and just take care of her. And he sacrificed everything, caring for this woman that he loved, even though she couldn't recognize him. She couldn't say thank you. She couldn't even acknowledge what it was he was doing, but he sacrificed. They loved her. We see examples that are beautiful of sacrifice all over the world that are human sacrifice. And so he talks about being a living sacrifice. He's talking about giving our lives in a way that, that, that is beautiful and good. But you notice it's not, just, it's not just kind of the hard stuff. It's really, it's all of life that's meant to be a sacrifice. And so when he says that, that, it's, that he calls them holy sacrifices that are set apart, acceptable and pleasing to the Lord, he's just saying you bring your life and everything that you do for the Lord is honoring to the Lord and it's good. And so we bring our joy to the Lord. We bring our goodness to the Lord. We bring our celebrations to the Lord. We, we also bring our service to the Lord. When he calls them holy, he means that it's set apart for a purpose. It's offering your life. It's what Paul says in, in Philippians 1. He says, for me to live is Christ. I mean, the purpose of my life is to be centered around Jesus. That's really why we're here. And he calls this your spiritual worship. Now, here's Paul's point. I think this is important for our day. Oftentimes when we talk about worship, what is it we think of? We think of singing. We think of being together in a big room with a bunch of people and all singing out. We think of that as worship. And yet Paul here is saying our spiritual worship is offering our life to God, our entire life to him and saying, here I am. And because of your mercy and your grace, I wanna live for you. I wanna be set apart for you and for your purposes. And I wanna want honor you and be acceptable to you in the way in which I live. Now, here's why I think this is important. Worship's not just an emotional response to a certain kind of lighting and music and a beat of a song. As important as, as our gatherings are, these are not necessarily bad. In fact, those things can actually stir up our emotions and our affections for something good. And so they're not bad, but they're just not everything. They're, they're not enough. And so our discipleship somehow has to go beyond big events. Our discipleship has to go beyond our, our catchy slogans and our emotional reactions and it really center us into a direct devotion with the Lord. 
So we can't just have a, de- a derived devotion or a derived experience from others. We need to have a direct devotion to God that comes out of our own hearts. And Jonathan Edwards in the Great Awakening, it was a revival that, that led, and this preacher got to be kind of at the epicenter of that. And it was so amazing that uh, people started writing him letters from Scotland and other places saying, hey, tell me what's going on in your midst. And there's just radical stuff happening. And people coming to the Lord and students that were staying up late at night just studying the Word of God and confessing sin and praying. And there's worship was happening. And there's all kinds of experiences that were going on. And people were, were enjoying just kind of this radical move of the Lord in this revival called the Great Awakening. And in that, he wrote a letter to Scotland because he wrote a book. Uh, it really was a letter Back in that day, their attention spans were a little longer than ours. So instead of sending a couple texts across the pond, he actually just wrote a book and said, let me just tell you what's happening. And sent it over there. It's called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And he described all the stuff that was going on and just all the miraculous change that was happening in people's lives. Here's what was interesting. 20 years later, or several, several years later, he looked back on all those things that happened. He wrote another book called Religious Affections. And it was kind of looking back saying, what of all the stuff that was going on there, what if it was real? How much of it stuck? How much of it really transformed lives and changed lives? And he came back to a point and he said, all the, all the, the, the kind of experience and all the stuff that was going on didn't, didn't have a one-to-one correlation with the actual changed lives that happened. The, 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 the ones whose lives changed weren't necessarily the ones that had big experiences back then. Some of the ones who had the most radical changes seemed to have very little experience then. Some of the ones who had great experiences really did have their lives changed, but it wasn't a one-to-one correlation. He said, looking back, the, the thing that made the difference was those whose hearts had been captured by the Lord, who had a direct devotion to the Lord, those who, who began to, out of their own experience of God's mercy, have a greater and deeper love of the Lord, and that actually resulted in change that stayed true over time. And so, as we think about that, I think that's why Romans 12 goes from talking about our spiritual worship that is really our whole life to what he says in verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To be conformed to this world, I love what J.B. Phillips' translation says, is don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. Don't, don't let the pressure of outside squeeze you into a worldly mold, but allow what God is doing in you to flourish and let it, let it have its way. I love the way the message talks about these verses. He said, uh, in, the, in the message, it says, here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. Don't be so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit in without even thinking. But instead, fix your attention on God, and you'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what God wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, which is always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best in you and develops well-formed maturity in you. And isn't that good? Just bring your whole life. You're walking around every day, eating, drinking, uh, living, working, life. Bring it to God, present it to him, and let him transform you. And that's the heart behind this. So it says kind of how we move to maturity. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Uh, friends, this is, I think, a dangerous minefield in our, in our time. I mean, we live in a time where our minds are constantly having to wage war. There, there's more pressure from the outside than ever before, more immediate messages from the outside than ever before, more, more false narratives, more information, and more misinformation. Uh, there, there's more emotional pleas and manipulation than, than we've ever experienced before just because of the technology and the life in, which, in the world in which we live. 
And here's, here's my fear. My fear is that we're being more discipled by Anderson and Tucker than we are by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. My fear is that we're allowing these worldly voices to shape us more than we are allowing the voice of God to shape us. And that's why we begin to look more worldly. Because we can't let every spec, speculation and conspiracy of men, every ickism and spasm that they throw out to shape us more than we allow the word of God and who God is to shape us. We've got to lean on the wisdom from the Lord more than we lean on wisdom from men. I got a picture of that this week again, and I've got a dog that I love very dearly. It's a golden, and I love him, but he's just not very smart. And he's got this situation. He does this all the time. I forget the first time I saw this happen, but he walked in between our air conditioning unit and the wall, and there's a fence in front of him. And so he walked back there sniffing around, his head down on the ground, just sniffing around looking for something. And he got himself positioned between the AC, the wall, and the fence, and then he just didn't know what to do. He just stuck. And so he's just sitting there. I couldn't find him. And I hear this whimpering, crying dog. And I go back there and he's just sitting there looking up at me like, what do I do? And I'm like, dude, just back up. But he, it, he's not capable of doing that. So he gets himself in these places all the time where he's just surrounded, he's looked in. And here's what I feel about our world right now is we look about that smart. We've got ourselves surrounded. We walked ourselves into a scenario. We've got so focused on the things of earth that we're looking down that we get ourselves trapped in this place. And we're just kind of whimpering going, I don't know what to do to get out of this mess. And I think we're gonna need someone stronger and wiser than we are to come help us. And like I have to pick my dog up, that big burly deal, and just turn him around and say, come back over here. It's gonna be okay. I think we need the Lord to do that for us because we're, we're stuck and we're in a bad place and our human solutions aren't gonna fix the problem that we have. So as he talks about being transformed, he talks about, uh, really it's a passive imperative. He's saying we need to allow ourselves to be transformed and outwardly changed into conformity with God, who God wants to make us on the inside. We need, we need God to take the, what's on the inside and change it. And he says renewing our mind. He's talking about reprogramming our mind. Adjust everything about our thinking so that it's in line with this new way of living. Yeah, Colossians 3 says we have to put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge uh, after the image of its creator, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It starts with the mind, but it doesn't end there. That's not where we end. It's always more than thinking, but never less. And so a transformed mind leads to a transformed will. So as we think about renewing our minds, Colossians says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of the creator. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That we take in the word of God and out of that, it produces something in us. And it does so as, and it starts in the mind, but it doesn't end there. And so our, our, our spiritual life is always more than thinking, but it's never less than thinking. It starts with us comprehending some truth from God and then living in light of that. And a transformed mind what we see here is that a transformed mind is the spring of a transformed will. And so he says that, that our minds are being renewed so that we can prove the will of God. How do you know that you're, that you're living within the will of God? If your mind has been renewed by truth from God and your heart has been surrendered as a sacrifice to God, then you're going to live out the will of God. It's what Jesus prayed, and we looked at last week. Abba, Father, not my will, but yours be done. It's the prayer we're, we're practicing in the month of July that says, Father, help me to, to want what you want. It's positioning ourselves as a, as a living sacrifice before the Lord, saying, I'm presenting myself to you. I want to receive and have my mind renewed from you so that I can determine how it is and will, how it is that I need to live. So we need that prayer to be spoken from a mind that's being constantly renewed by God and by his word. So how do we apply all this? What do, how do we take this, uh, th this big idea and, and flesh it out into our lives? If we're going to if we're going to thrive in our season, and I might even say if we're going to survive 
in this season, uh, we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to learn to draw more on the mercies of God than the messes of men. We're, we're going to have to trust him and lean on that. You know, sometimes we talk about stewardship in church, and usually when we talk about stewardship, we're talking about finances, aren't we? That we're, we're, we're God's, you know, God, God owns everything, and he's made us our, his money managers, and our job is to kind of parcel it out in, in right proportions. So we give God some of those, and then we give some for the provision of our house, some for our savings, some for other things. And we steward the wealth and the things that we have. But did you know that you're not, you don't only steward your money? Do you know you have to steward all of your life? The, the, the part of what we have to, what we see in these verses, we, we have to steward our emotions, we have to steward our time, we steward our energy, and we steward our minds. We have to parcel out those things in, in appropriate measure. And, when, and, and the, the reality for us is that you alone are the keeper of those things. Some of us need to stop doing so much. Some of us are running ourselves ragged and running ourselves crazy, and you spend, we're spending so much energy and time and emotions and so much of our mind on worldly ways and worldly worries that we don't have any space left for God. And because we're so focused on those things, we're, we're not experiencing the renewal of God and the transformation of the Lord. Think of it maybe like being a chef. And if you're a chef and you're preparing a meal, you need to, you need to put everything, you, you've got a plate that only holds so much on it, right? And so you need to put everything in the right proportions on that plate. And some of you got nothing but one thing on that plate. And that's why you're wondering why things are not working out quite as they are. But if you're going to nourish your life, you've got to have things in proper proportion. And what we're seeing in our world is a whole bunch of people living on an unhealthy diet. And it's not producing a flourishing and a nourishing of life in us. That's why we don't look like Jesus. When we see in our worlds that we sound like the world, we look like the world, we post on social media like the world. And what that means is that we're not living by the mercies of God. We're living, we're living by the worries of the, of the world. We need to be transformed. Friends, your, your life with God can only, or life for God can only be an outflow of your being with God. And so if, as we're not with the Lord, as we're not receiving, as we're not operating out of, our, out of his mercies, we're gonna not have any, any overflow of, of goodness to give. Now the problem with that is that we each have this kind of petulant toddler in our head that says, um, I wanna do it my way. And so we, we fight against that and we don't, we don't really wanna do this. But that's not how Jesus lived. Mark 135 says, uh, says of Jesus, very in the, early in the morning while it was still dark, he got up and went to a solitary place where he prayed. He went and nourished himself with his heavenly father. And it's not how David lived. We see in Psalm 23, David says that my cup overflows, that he had something coming in that overflowed in goodness of life. And that's what he needed to do. And that's, I think, where we need to be. You've heard me say it before. If, you're, if your output exceeds your input, your upkeep will be your downfall. You've got to have enough input coming in to have something to offer. And really, as we think about this, let me kind of close with a picture, but here's what I, what I realize is that if, you're, if our mind is more fixated on men than on God, our lives will be more conformed to the world than they are to our Lord. And so as we think about this, let me close with a picture. It comes from a 12th century monk, Bernard of Clairvaux. And as he talks about this, do you know the difference between a canal and a reservoir? I had to think about this when I first read it. A canal is a, is a, is a body of water where, or an avenue between two bodies of water. And in one body of water, water just flows in and immediately flows out. So in a canal, they, they, they raise the, the gate, 
water flows in and it just keeps flowing and they raise the gate on the other side and it flows straight through the other side. But it's, it's, it's always just moving through, but there's never any holding tank. A reservoir is different because a reservoir is a giant body of water that water flows into and it flows into until it fills up and it keeps filling up until it gets to where it's maxed out and then it's released and it overflows. And so the water flows through, but it flows through out of the overflow, not out of, not out of the deficit. Listen to what Bernard says about our lives. He says, the man who is wise, therefore, will see his life more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains the water until, it's, until it is full. Then it discharges the overflow without any loss to itself. You too must learn to await this fullness before pouring out your gifts. Do not try to be more generous than God. See, if we're giving out of our deficit, if we're giving out of just who we are, we've got, very, we've got just a trickle to give. But if we're, if we're being filled up with the Lord, filling up to overflow and we give out of that, out of the excess, then there's a never-ending resource of something to be good. He goes on to say, well, we, have, we have all too few such reservoirs at present, though we have canals in plenty. The canal people desire to pour themselves out when they've not yet been poured into. They are readier to speak than to listen, eager to teach when they do not know, and most anxious to exercise authority over others, even though they have not learned to rule even themselves. We need to be more like reservoir, which does not pour out on others until it is full to overflowing. So you first need to be filled up to the overflowing in your mind and then pour out from a place of fullness. But friends, as you think about applying this today, that's my encouragement to us. What does it look like for you to not just keep running, not just keep exhausting yourself, not to be so full of the worries of, of the world, but to steward your life well? so that you are, you're being filled up with the mercies of God, filled up with the truth of God, your mind's being renewed by the Lord, so that then as we engage our world, as we love those around us, we've got something real to offer them. Let me pray for us. Father, we know you do not hold, withhold your mercy or grace, but you give it to overflowing. Father, I pray that we would be those who present ourselves to you in a humble way, who come to you, wanting to receive. Father, I just ask that you would pour out mercy on us. Would you pour out your grace and your love on us? Father, would we not be so closed off and our minds not be racing with the things of men to such a degree that we, that we don't see you, we don't present ourselves to you, and we don't humbly just come to you to, to enjoy and to receive from you. Father, may that produce something good in us so that we have something of great value to offer our world. Father, might we be a people that broadcast your goodness to our world out of the overflow of your goodness, not out of the emptiness of our own lives. Let me pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.